Hey, this is Big Rev. Thanks for tuning in to Masterclass Theology, a weekly podcast where we study books of the Bible a verse at a time and apply it to our lives. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's rock. Well, welcome everybody to Masterclass Theology. We are in session two of this series. We are still in 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 13 to 25. And am I coming through okay? I just bumped it. Am I coming through okay on the Zoom? All right. Zoom, can you give me a thumbs up? Can you hear me? All right. I got thumbs up. Okay, class, you can hear me. We're good. All right. Let's open with a word of prayer, and then we will sally forth. God, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for the text of 1 Peter and how the unique challenge it's going to give us tonight. We thank you for uh, the ability that we have to gather together to be able to study your word, that we can do so with peace and in relative safety and comfort. And we're very grateful for that, Lord. I just thank you for these men and women uh, who are joining us tonight. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Peter had a lot of fun moments with Jesus, didn't he? We think of a time when, when there was a great catch of fish, and, and Peter's first move was to say, Get away from me, Lord. I'm sinful. Just being that close to Jesus, it reminded him of his own, I don't know what to say at that point, unworthiness, his own dirtiness, his own, I don't know what to say. But being that close to Jesus reminded him. He just wanted to get away, Lord. You're too close to me, Lord. We get another time where later on in the Gospels where where Jesus preaches a really hard sermon. And everyone flees. It's been said he preached his his crowd from thousands to twelve. He preached a sermon about that involved eating the flesh and drinking the blood of the Son of Man. And he was speaking spiritually, but everybody took it literally. And they said, Jesus, are you some kind of cannibal? What is this going on? So everyone took off. And so Jesus looks at the apostles. He says, you're going to leave too? And Peter famously said, where am I going to go? Where are we going to go? You alone have the words of life. So we see with Peter here, already from the start, he understands what it's like to come close to Jesus. He also understands what it's like to have your hope in Jesus and in this relationship. That Jesus offered something that nobody else did. So we come to 1 Peter chapter 1, the second part of it here. And I, I want you to keep those, those scenes of Peter on your mind. Because this is Peter's epistle. This is Peter's opportunity to feed the lambs that Jesus commanded him to feed. So we have here, uh, as we go down the page, active minds, non-conforming hearts. So active minds... Now, if you're, like, if you're like other people, sometimes this is like me, you might have anxiety before you go to bed. And you're sitting there in bed, and your brain will not be quiet. And it is so active, and you're thinking of things you haven't thought about in 30 years, but it's coming to mind right now. When you want your brain to be most quiet, it sometimes is most active. So here tonight, in verse 13, Peter writes, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you 
when Jesus Christ has revealed his coming. Active minds. I have to tell my son a lot. I have to remind him, focus, focus. And the number one thing I tell him to focus on is I have my son match me. So my son sometimes will get really excited and start talking really loudly and, and just, he'll just really start talking, talking, talking. And I have to remind him, what am I doing right now? Am I talking loudly? Am I being anxious and, you know, squirrely? Am I doing all those things? No. Okay, match me. Just match what I'm doing. It's just usually my focus. We're focusing right here. We're just going to focus our mind. We're just going to focus on the situation. It's a good reminder. And he usually needs such a reminder. I could use a reminder from time to time. With minds that are alert and fully sober. This, by the way, if you want to take it at face value, would be a teetotal argument. Uh, it's another argument you can make. It's really hard to love the Lord your God with all your mind if you're actively killing brain cells with alcohol. But this is fully sober, alert. This kind of language is used to be ready, to be on the lookout. Stay focused. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. So stay focused. But stay focused on what? We talked about last week, faith has an object. Every time you have a faith, your faith is in what? I mean, even if you're going to grab a chair and sit in that chair, your faith is in that chair is going to hold you. Your faith always has an object. But your hope? Hope usually has a focus. What are some of the things you might have hoped for? I know as a kid, you know, baseball is on my mind. The, the team that I root for is still fighting for a playoff spot. And... Uh, in case you're wanting to know, I grew up downstate. I, I bleed Cardinal Red. But my team is still fighting for a spot. They had to climb over like 900 other teams to get where they're at. It's not set and done. But part of me is hoping they make the playoffs. You see, when I was a little kid, I played on Little League teams. And when you're on a Little League team in the summer, you don't like the rain. Because if it rains, that means that you're not going to get to play that night. Because the field will not be playable. So you hope you hope, you hope, when the skies turn gray, oh, may that wait till after the game is over. You hope that, oh, maybe it'll pass by. Maybe they won't call tonight's game. Maybe we'll still get to play. We only have so many games we could play this summer. We can't lose one. Our hope. Maybe your hope is in something else. Maybe you hope for peace when you don't have peace. Maybe you hope for forgiveness where you don't have forgiveness. Maybe you're hoping for comfort because you don't have that comfort you're longing for. Maybe you're hoping for security. Maybe you're looking, hoping for, to find love again. I don't know. I don't know exactly what you're hoping for. But we're told here to focus on hope. What in the world could this mean? Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed it is coming. My wife works in hospice. So she deals with people who are on their deathbed and they're having to, you know, she brings them spiritual care. She helps them to process things towards the end of their life. And she helps them, you know, to, to pray. She helps them to figure out, you know, what kind of things to be thinking about in these last days, maybe what to say to family members. My wife is just a master at this. She's a hospice chaplain and, and, and I'm just amazed at how God uses her. But it gets me thinking about it. What would I be thinking about in my last days? I have weaker moments where I begin to think, 
what if all this isn't enough? What if I don't really have what I should have? Like, what if I get to the end? So I'm saying this is in a weaker moment, you see. What if I get to the end and I'm, I'm just wondering about, am I forgiven? Am I actually going to go to heaven? Is this, because when you get to the end, you have no more time to ponder these things. So I'm just placing myself in that position of wondering about that. And I get that flavor right here. Because this is like an end kind of conversation. Set your hope on that grace that's going to be revealed. What does that mean? That means that, yes, I am saved. Yes, that salvation is enough. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, he has called me. Yes, I am elect. I am chosen. All those things from chapter 1. We see when we get in trouble, when we go through really hard times, we struggle with those questions. And yes, even though we're Christians, even though we go to church, even though we, we have these great theological moments and say all these wonderful things, even though we're dedicated people of faith, it's tempting to struggle. These people are going through trials. Maybe they're facing death on a daily basis. Their faith has to be real at that point. Are they gonna focus on their surroundings or are they gonna focus on this grace that when Jesus does come, he is enough? I don't want you to think that I'm sitting here questioning my salvation. I'm just putting myself in that scenario. If I only had days to live, moments to live, what would I be thinking about? Would I begin to wonder? Would I begin to ponder? I don't know. I'm just being real with you. I haven't been in that position before. But he's telling these people to focus. Focus their mind. And you can focus your mind by means of what you say to yourself. Your self-talk. Your inner narrative. The things you believe and hold to. That's why it's really important to, 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 to memorize scripture, to hide God's word in your heart, to have that at a moment's notice, to be able to draw upon and be able to speak to yourself. Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you. That means that grace is coming. That's kind of cool. When Jesus Christ is revealed, kind of like in a Revelation 19, the rider on the white horse, when he shows up at the sound of a trumpet, the whole rapture thing, here he is, and he's coming with grace. That's a kind of a cool moment. That helps calm my hypothetical doubt in that story, doesn't it? If I'm focusing on the grace I have received through faith, that gives me the, the assurance I crave. Make sense? That's what he's telling them to do as they go through this really, really hard time. So stay focused. Have an active mind. What things are the focus of our hope? Yeah, there's a lot of things we hope for. But at the end of it all, what trumps this? That I actually will get to go to heaven? That my sins actually are paid for? That I am forgiven? That I am reconciled? That I no longer am God's enemy, but I'm with him? I mean, that kind of, there's nothing more important than that. So set your hope on that grace. Be confident. Verse 14, non-conforming hearts. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Ooh, ignorance, huh? Yeah, we were ignorant. Before we knew Jesus and before we, before we understood the gospel, we were ignorant of the gospel. But we're not ignorant anymore. Not anymore. And these people here are Christians in the text. He's writing to people in church, in churches. He's writing to believers. As obedient children... 
Do not conform to the evil desires you had. So you conform to a standard. So what standard did you have? Before Christ, maybe you marched by a beat of a drum. What was that drum beat? Was it the world's drum beat? Was it society's drum beat? Was it your own? Maybe you live for pleasure. Maybe you live for pride. You live for importance. You live for the attaboy, the girl. You live for, I don't know. Think to yourself right now, what would describe you before Jesus? What did you live for? What was your standard? Maybe you wanted to be seen as popular. Maybe you wanted to be accepted. Maybe you wanted to be loved. Maybe you wanted pleasure. And you sought that above all else. You see, you begin to conform your heart to that standard. He's telling you here, as obedient children, and that just implies what family you have. You know, we sing, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. If you're an obedient child, that begs the question, a child of whom? You've got to be thinking about that. He's not calling them obedient children to call them obedient children. These are adults he's talking to. You don't call an adult a child, unless you're making a point. What standard are they holding to? Are they holding to God's standard? Are they following him? Are they living by those family values? That's key. Do not conform to the evil desires you had. So that tells me that my heart can't long. The deepest pursuits of my heart can't be selfish. And that's kind of important because in the biblical counseling world, we ask this question, or we make this statement. I do what I do because I want what I want. So you have to ask yourself, what is it I really want? Because I bet that's what I'm going to start doing. So what are your deepest desires? Think about that for one second. Are they selfish? They might just be. It is very tempting to be selfish, especially with the deepest recesses of our heart, the desires we long for most. What are the deepest pursuits of your heart? Do they match up with God's standards? Because if we dare to pray that God's going to give us the desires of our heart, we need to have the same desires that he desires. We need to have family values from his family. He is our father. We don't dare ask our father for things unless they are things that our father would desire to give to us. Because we don't want to bring sin and sinful desires into this family relationship with God. Make sense? So what are the deepest pursuits of your heart? That's a good time to check your heart right now. Like, really, what's going on? Are you conforming to those evil desires that you once had? Because he's telling these people, don't have a conforming heart. You're already going to have an active, active mind. You're already going to be active mind seeking on the focus on these things. But what about your inside? What about this deep desire you have within you? If you had that desire, would that desire honor God or would that desire more honor you? Is it more thy kingdom come or more my kingdom come? That's just a question you've got to ask. And that really affects most all of the parts of all your life. What is your deepest want? And what do you do because you want that want? So verse 15. But just as he who called you is holy... So be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. This is, of course, found in Leviticus. We have this idea of be like daddy, do like daddy. 
I've got two young children at home, and you bet your bottom dollar. I didn't tell you to bet anything, by the way. Don't get me in trouble with that. But you can bet, you can bet that if I say a word we shouldn't say in the house, I have weak moments. And I'll say something that I regret saying. You can bet that the kids are, Daddy just said that word. Oh, great. Sorry, honey. I, I, yeah, I said that. Oh, gosh. I was talking about... I don't know what I was talking about, but I shouldn't have said it, number one, but I doubly shouldn't have said it in front of the kids because kids are going to act like their parents. They're going to follow mommy or daddy. So God's, God's worth telling us, be like daddy. Be holy. So be, that is not an action verb. There's something deeper about that. That's an identity kind of idea. Be. How, that's like, is our and was were. That's like, that is what you are, who you are to be holy. There's something intrinsic about that. Just like God is intrinsically holy, holy meaning set apart, different, unique. My mom had china. My mom got some really precious china from her grandmother. She brought it out every Thanksgiving. I was terrified of that china. I still am. That was, I, I, I remember... You know, my mom used to like to always ask, uh, you know, us kids, come wash dishes with mom. I don't remember being asked to wash those dishes with mom. <laughs> I was terrified of those. I was going to break them. I was going to, I didn't want to eat off those things. You know, pouring the gravy out of that gravy thing I'm like, uh, with a little tiny ring that you're supposed to put your finger through. And I'm like, I don't even want, I'm just going to go without gravy. I, my mashed potatoes are going to be dry because I'm afraid of this. Those things are precious. They're brought out once a year. They're unique. They're set apart. Those dishes are never used except for the special, most revered occasions in the family. That is holy. Holy is set apart. It is special. It is unique. It is not profane. Profane like every day. It's not for that. No. So God is that way. He's not like other deities. He's expecting you to be like him in what you value and that you're going to turn to him, not to everybody else. It worked in the book of Exodus when God was not all the deities of Egypt. In fact, Yahweh was superior, is superior. Be holy as I am holy. But it continues. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy. Great. Be holy. Gotcha. In all you do. Oh, goodness. Now I can't be let off the hook, can I? Oh, I'm, we're good, God. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm holy. Be holy as you are holy. Yeah, you, you got gotcha. you. I'm with you, God. I'm with you. But now do holy. Oh, crud. You mean it's not just what I am, but I got to do it too? Really? Yeah, be like daddy and do like daddy. So Jesus expects us to mimic him. He expects us to live like him, his values. He gives us those values in the Beatitudes. Those are not optional. He expects us to, act, to actually love our neighbor. He expects us to actually love our enemies. Nobody wants to love their enemies. Love your enemies and pray for them. Bless them instead of cursing them. Are you kidding me? You know, when, when, I, when I look at people who are, are seeing they're trying to get their marriage rebuilt and they're trying to really submit to God's way to kind of rebuild their life, and so we start with those love things. I say, well, start by treating that person as your enemy. Man, I hate to say it, but we're not allowed to hate anybody. Even if they're your enemy, you're supposed to love them. Start building it back up that way. Okay, you got past that level. You're actually praying for a blessing for your spouse, even though when they tick you off. You want the best for them? 
then you can graduate to start loving them as a neighbor. That's not that grand. I mean, I love my wife as a neighbor, I guess. Well, I love your neighbor as yourself. It's it's a stepping stone, I guess. And then finally, you can get to an Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay, you've got to start maybe by rebuilding from scratch with love of enemy, then love of neighbor, then finally a a Christian spousal kind of love, the way it should be. Um, Yeah, be like daddy, do like daddy. Daddy expects you to love that way. We need to love that way. Be holy as I am holy. So be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Wow. So what's your present reality? Verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Wow. Your present reality starts with who he is. We call on God, our Father, but also God, can we say it? There's a verb here. Our judge, our Father who judges. Ooh, maybe you had a dad that judged how you cleaned your room. And however you cleaned your room meant you got to have the car keys that weekend to go out with your friends or not. Or maybe how you made your bed. Maybe how you vacuumed the room. How you, you know, fastened your necktie. How, I don't, we call upon our God who judges. That's kind of terrifying. You could be innocent in a court of law, but you face the judge and you freeze for a little bit. Like I'm still standing before the judge. Huh. Wow. I was in a jury. Or even, I didn't, never ever got selected, but I was in that big jury room for jury duty and standing before the judge in that great wood paneled massive room It kind of causes you to pause for a second. This is a judge. This is a courtroom of law. Even though I'm in the jury box. Wow, this is something. We call upon our Father who judges each person's work. Ooh, that's a little scary. Think of all the things you've done. Think of all the things you haven't done. Maybe you should have done. You know, we're told in Scripture that we will all one day give an account. I'm not saying, Christian, we're going to be found as anything but innocent, but giving an account is a terrifying thing. And it kind of should be. Because we follow here with reverent fear. You know, Jesus once said, don't fear the one who can kill the body. Instead, fear the one who can kill the body and toss that person into hell. So someone who has control of an eternal destiny. That's kind of interesting. Are we supposed to be walking around terrified? No, we don't get that that idea from the New Testament. That this love kind of drives out that kind of fear, we're told. But still, to think we can try to take advantage of God just because we're cool with Jesus, I don't think that's on the menu either. We should have an appropriate fear of God. We're told in Proverbs that that's the beginning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding everything about this life. Yeah. You call on a father who judges each person's work impartially. I like that too. This judge is impartial. You cannot manipulate this judge. So 
live out your time as foreigners here. Foreigners? Yeah. We're, I don't know if we're illegal aliens, but we're aliens. Yeah. Hebrews is pretty clear. Our home, our, we're, we're going towards a city whose architect and builder is God. Our home is not here in an ultimate sense. It behooves us not to live as if this is all that there is. I'm just saying, if you're living for everything temporal, you're misguided at best. If everything is about the here and now, you're missing the point about every time Jesus talks about the kingdom. I'm just saying, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Revere this very God, our Father, our Judge. That's our present reality. That's your attitude. An appropriate fear of God. Yeah. Because if we don't have that fear, we're going to try to take advantage of God. We're going to try to manipulate God. We're going to say things like, well, you know, God, I once had perfect Sunday school attendance. I filled out every one of my Iwana books, God. I, have, I never miss a Sunday. I have my, 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 my tithe coming out of an auto payment. I get that text message and an email every weekend. I am regular on my giving. I am serving. I am doing all these things with God. I'm just saying. Don't have a God I'm just saying with God. We can't play that. That's like breaking out your resume and saying, see, I mean, I, I did do this. I mean, I'm just saying, God, if you want to toss a blessing my way, because there's no quid, quid pro quo with an impartial judge. We can't do that. We can live as children, expecting God to bless us as he blesses, but we're not trying to manipulate that from God. That's your present reality. Does God care about your present way of living? Yes. Yes. The evidence in the New Testament is yes. The Ten Commandments, yes. How you live right now matters. There is no great cosmic do-over. You can argue very successfully that eternity starts now. I mean, when's it going to stop? We, we get like, okay, I'm dead, then I'm going to be eternity at that point, or no. You belong in Christ, you're dying once. I mean, unless you're like Lazarus, where he raised him from the dead. We assume Lazarus died a second time. We're actually not told it, but we're, we assume it. Because he's not here today. Okay. Your redeemed past, 18 and 19. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold. We like silver and gold. We like that, don't we? It is literally the basis of our monetary system. Our whole world runs right now on the standard that is gold. Gold is everything. That's just, yes, I know there's bitcoins and there's, there's other stuff going on there, but by and large, the gold is currently the standard. It's like that's what the world runs on money, you might say, and that money is backed by gold, a very precious thing. Now you can only imagine in the ancient world where that especially was the thing. You know it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. Ouch. Seriously? Peter, you're going to talk about my family that way? You're going to talk about my heritage that way? We live in a world today where heritage is everything. Where race and culture are everything. They may be definers of truth for many people. Well, because I am of this heritage... That, that means this is true for me and not for you. 
And that doesn't make sense from a truth standpoint, but that's how our society does. But you are redeemed from that empty way of life handed down to you. Empty. Empty. Wow. You see, that you pre-Jesus, where you were the master of your own ship, where you were the one who was able to figure things out, you were the one who was trying to solve things. Maybe you could solve your greatest problems. You would work on things. You would do things. And you were the one who was the master. Maybe you weren't that good at that. I don't know. It was empty. It's that idea from, from Ecclesiastes where it says vanity, foolishness. It's just, there's just air. You try to grab it, but it's just air. There's nothing to hold on to. It's vain. It's just, there's nothing there. You can't build upon it. It's just done. You are redeemed from that. Redeemed, bought, slave, redemption. You were bought from that selfishness. You were bought from that selfish, self-centered, broken, empty way of life. Handed down to you all the way back to your first ancestor, Adam. That sin nature. That thing that wants to please yourself above all else. And we still dance with that every once in a while when we face temptation. I want to please what I want to please. I want to be happy. I want to do things my way. You were redeemed. Don't forget that. You were bought. It's something we're talking about. Um, I, I talk about this with guys who are facing purity issues. 1 Corinthians 6. You were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your body. You've been bought. Same idea, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives through me. This life is not my own anymore. It's Jesus' life. See, we kind of want to think that, okay, yeah, I, I turn to Jesus, but, I, you know, Jesus, yeah, you're the boss, we're cool, and you're the Savior, yep, I'm with you, Lord, oh, you betcha, Lord, but you know what, I'm still going to do me, right? And I'll kind of sprinkle you on the top. Maybe you'll be in the right drawer, and I'll just kind of file things, and I, I'm in the right state, right? You and me, God? No. No, that's kind of pushing Jesus to the periphery. We can't do that. We can't do that. We were redeemed from that. You've been bought at a price. That price was not silver or gold. It was here, the empty way of life, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Something is more precious than silver or gold? Yes. Jesus, who died in your place. That is the most precious thing ever. And it's a thing because Peter's talking about the blood. I'm not calling Jesus a thing. And the precious blood of Christ. Your redeemed past. Do you view your past this way? Maybe you regret your past. Maybe you look back and you just, you look back at the hypocrisy. Maybe you look back at the things you said, the things you did, maybe the things you didn't say or do that you should have. Maybe you're full of regret. Maybe you battle shame. Maybe you deal with guilt. Maybe you don't put into practice Romans 8.1. There is no longer any condemnation, but you continue to have condemnation. 
you continue to condemn yourself, you have been bought. You have been redeemed. Your past can be put in its place. And that's some of the best news you're ever going to hear. Your past in Christ no longer defines you like it once did. You don't escape your past. Jesus deals with your past. Jesus, can we take that verse from 1 Peter 2 coming up here in a bit? Jesus bore your past. He bore our sins in his body, we're going to find out. Can we take that about our past? We have forgiveness. Our past can be put in its place because we belong to Jesus. Because by his stripes we are healed. Your redeemed past. Now past, present, and future, 20 and 21. He was chosen, he, he's speaking of Jesus, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Wow. What's the past work of God? Um, before Adam and Eve ever were, the plan of salvation was chosen. Did you catch that? God is not the great responder. He's not marching the corridors of heaven, mopping his brow, going, is Eve going to eat that fruit? Is she going to listen to that walking serpent thing? That's shockingly talking. Is she going to listen to that thing? Is she going to believe him when he says to her, did God really say that? God's not up there just wiping his brow, going, well, if she does, I've got a plan. And I know exactly what to do. Get ready, Jesus. Michael, you're going to get him down there. Okay, I, uh, here we go. I've got a plan. Gee, I'm, I'm just saying, if she eats and sin enters, then we are ready to go, and I am the greatest responder of all time, or from the, before the creation of the world, before whatever happened, whether it was some kind of a cosmic big bang, whether it was just God just speaking those particles into existence before they banged, I don't know. We weren't there. We just know that God did, and that God spoke, and God created. And then when it came to human beings, God formed. Okay? Before any of that happened, Jesus was chosen. You catch me? The plan of salvation was not a response to anything we've done. Before anything was ever formed or created, anything, before Genesis 1-1, you might argue. If you can get before Genesis 1-1, I'm just saying... Theologically, I don't know if you can, but if you can, boom. That would make this the earliest verse in the Bible, wouldn't it? If you want to argue that way. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. So you could know. So you could know and have assurance and have hope to kind of take that hypothetical Joel in my opening example and say, yes. Be of peace. God's chosen you and God has redeemed you. 21. Though through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, so, and so your faith and hope are in God. The, pre, the past work of God is, look at what God's done. God has raised Jesus from the dead. What is more important than that? I mean, if you can believe that, you can believe anything else about God. If he can now raise people from the dead... We're good. What, God, what can God not do at that point in terms of miracles? Who raised Jesus from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are now in God. So the past work of God affects your present faith. As the Easter hymn says, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Yes. That also implies you can face today. 
because he lives, because Jesus is not dead in a grave, but is a, a resurrected and ascended to glory, dang, I think this God's got this. This is like the same way of saying I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I am the A and the Z. So God who's got at the A and God who's got at the Z is God from the B to the Y. I don't know where we're at. The Q? God's God. He's got this. We trust him. Our past, our present, our future. The past work of God our present faith, our future hope. We know he's coming again. And that hope we're staying sober for. We're staying alert for. For that grace to be fully and finally revealed. Mm. Theology affects life. 22 to 25. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth. By the way, don't get too ahead of yourself there. You've accepted the gospel. You're not the one doing the purifying here. This is kind of like an Old Testament image of like kind of being in a mikvah, having a, a ritual baptismal thing, kind of like with John the Baptist out there in the wilderness, a baptism of repentance. You've gone through this purifying. Okay, this is Jesus has purified you. You've turned it, you've responded to the gospel. So now you are, uh, you've been purified by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other. Yeah. We're united in love. So love one another deeply from the heart. Don't you understand? These are people who didn't have much to hang their hat on. They're in an armpit territory of Rome. They're also Rans. They're out there in the sticks. And they're being persecuted. They're not in the major cities. We don't even know if Peter was actually up there with them at any time. Or if he was just writing to them. We don't know. We don't know if they ever met Peter or they just met some other person that gave them the gospel. We don't know. History, scripture doesn't tell us. But they have, are to have sincere love for each other. Jesus would say, by this the world will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again. We, you have been born again. This is what Nicodemus had to figure out. Is this a fleshly born again? I mean, seriously? All that involves? No. The flesh gives birth to flesh. Hello, we're here. Flesh. But the spirit gives birth. You've been spiritually born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Through the living and enduring word of God. So you responded to the gospel. You are, you, you, we are united in love. This unity that we have is greater than biological unity. We all have family. Or have had family. Even if you have had family that's not biological family. They're still your family. There's a unity there. That belongs to family. But we have something greater than biological unity. We have something greater that unifies us. There's a lot that we don't have in common. But who we do have in common is greater than what we don't have in common. Right? We can find Christians halfway around the world. They don't look like us. They don't smell like us. They don't sing like us. They don't talk like us. They may not even worship like us. But if they're followers of Jesus, that matters most. Revelation 4 and 5. Who's around the, who's around the throne? Every tongue, tribe, and nation. Who are they worshiping? The lamb at the center of the throne. 
He is who we have in common. It's greater than biological unity. It's enduring forever. He quotes a verse from Isaiah 40 here. You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Yes. That word of God cannot be replaced. It cannot be trumped. It cannot be overtaken. It cannot be superseded. It cannot be you name it. It is it. It is God's decree. It will never stop being the boss. Yeah. That word. You've been born again through that enduring word. The very pages of scripture has led the Holy Spirit using God's word through the gospel preaching through God's word. Using that to regenerate you. That endures forever. And Peter drops the mic here. And this is the word that was preached to you. How would this have sounded to them? We don't know how bad their life was. We actually just don't know. We know the Roman Empire was not fun to Christians. It varied based upon the, the Caesar. But there's, sometimes it was just really rough. Not too far away, uh, Nero is going to set, the, set Rome on fire and blame the Christians for it. There's another Caesar, I think, that's going to uh, light Christians on fire and, and make those people be the, the lanterns for his garden. Lit people as lanterns. Some hard times facing here. How would this have sounded? You have each other. And who you have in common is greater Hold on to that hope. I know this life is rough. I know what we're going through is terrible. Hold on to that hope of that grace, which will one day be revealed. Yes. How does that sound to us? How does that sound to us? How would you respond to this? This is kind of like, how are you going to keep enduring as our society keeps changing the rules on everything? As up turns into down and a right turns into left. How do we respond? What do we hold in common? What is most important to us? Whose family do we belong to? How do we live as members of that family? Are we holy? Do we do holy? I found them to be interesting questions tonight. This has been Big Rev for Masterclass Theology from the tail end of 1 Peter 1. Thanks for letting me share. This has been Masterclass Theology. I pray you've been challenged and encouraged during today's episode, and I hope you'll continue to join us as we journey through the Bible. God bless.